Hey guys, uh, welcome to another episode of the Tax Court Podcast. My name is Lee Wilson, and with me as always is Rick Thakwar, and we are your hosts. Uh, you may be wondering why I, instead of Rick, is doing the intro here, uh, and I'm sorry to do that to you. I know you like hearing Rick's voice for our regular listeners to start you off, but uh, we've had a little change in formatting today, and, and what that is 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 uh, you're going to hear Rick for the vast majority of this episode because uh, this episode is about deference, specifically deference to Treasury regulations. Um, this is a topic that Rick is uh, very well versed in and actually recently gave a fantastic presentation on. Uh, and so we just felt like it was best in this context to have him talk at length about that. And I'll chime in from time to time uh, with some questions and some points here and there. But by and large, this is going to be Rick's show. He's going to be doing the heavy lifting. So um, don't worry. You'll get to hear him soon. Um, so how does that sound, Rick? You ready to do that? Sounds good. Yeah. Let's uh, jump into it. By the way, how are you doing today, Lee? Oh, yeah, you know what? I'm doing good. Sorry, I was excited. I wanted to get right into it, man. No problem. Um, yeah, it's actually an exciting topic, and I'm excited about it. I gave a presentation on it. It was a lot of fun. And for those regular listeners, you'll know that what we do in this podcast is a lot of history leading up to the cases, because it's really interesting and it's fun for us. So there'll be a lot of that, just because that's what I really love about these podcasts. But anyway, let's get into it, and um, we're going to start with a Supreme Court case called Skidmore v. Swift & Company. This is a 1944 Supreme Court case. The site is 323 U.S. 134, and this case deals with seven employees of Swift & Company, which brought a suit under the, or brought a claim under the Fair Labor Standards Act to recover overtime pay for time they spent three to four nights a week where they stayed at Swift & Company in a fire hall to respond to any alarms or fires that go off during the night. The employees were paid for every alarm that they responded to. They were not paid for the actual time they spent there waiting for any emergencies to happen. And so they are suing to get paid overtime for this time they were sitting around waiting to respond to these fire alarms. Uh, the lower court found that this was not considered overtime work, the waiting time, for which they should be compensated under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And so the case got kicked up to the Supreme Court. And what we have here is when Congress uh, created the Fair Labor Standards Act, they also created an office of administrator. And the office of administrator, part of his responsibilities was to release certain interpretive bulletins and informal rulings dealing with the Fair Labor Standards Act. And some of these actually dealt with whether waiting time should be compensated under the act. And so the administrator gave various examples of waiting time and when it should be compensated in these informal rulings and interpretive bulletins, uh, but nothing directly on point. So when this case was at the Supreme Court, the administrator actually expressed his views in this case through an amicus brief. And those views were basically that any time that these employees spent Sleeping and eating is time they shouldn't be compensated for. So, you know, this is overnight work and they were probably sleeping for most of the night and would wake up and respond to any alarms if an alarm went off. But if an alarm didn't go off, they just sort of slept 
through the night. And the administrator in his amicus brief is saying shouldn't be compensated for that. So the issue in this case, um, why this case is important to this topic is what kind of deference should the court give to this interpretation of the act by the administrator, by this somewhat ruling of the administrator? Uh, remember, this isn't formal guidance. This isn't like treasury regulations. This isn't through formal rulemaking. So what the court said is there is no statutory provision as to what, if any, deference courts should pay to the administrator's conclusions. And while we have given them notice, we have no occasion to try to prescribe their influence. So basically dealing with this for the first time. The court also said that, and this is really the crux of the case, and this is a quote, we consider that the rulings, interpretations, and opinions of the administrator under this act, while not controlling upon the courts by reason of their authority, do constitute a body of experience and informed judgment to which courts and litigants may properly resort for guidance. The weight of such judgment in a particular case will depend upon the thoroughness evident in its consideration, the validity of its reasoning, its consistency with earlier and later pronouncements, and all those factors which give it power to persuade if lacking power to control. So basically here, the court says this is not going to control, but it's informative and um, we'll take it into consideration. So that was Skidmore, and that leads us to the next case, which is the biggest case when it comes to uh, judicial deference to Treasury regulations, or any kind of regulation, actually, because it's an environmental law case, and that's uh, Chevron USA Inc. versus NRDC Inc. So the site on this case is 467 US 837, and this is a 1984 case. And so what you have in this case is you have the amended Clean Air Act requires certain states that had not achieved the national air quality standards enacted by the EPA to establish a permit program regulating, um, and it's a quote, new or modified major stationary sources, end quote, of air pollution. So the term stationary sources was not defined in the statute. So the EPA regulations promulgated to implement these permits defined stationary source to mean any building, structure, facility, or installation which emits or may emit any air pollutant subject to regulation under the Act. The regulation further defined building, structure, facility, or installation to mean all of the pollutants emitting activities which belong to the same industrial grouping. Basically, they created a plant-wide definition for stationary sources rather than an individual stack-by-stack definition. So why is this important? Um, Under this definition, an existing power plant that contains several polluting-emitting devices may install or modify one piece of equipment without meeting the permit conditions if the alteration or installation did not increase the total emissions of the plant. Um, And interestingly enough, this was actually um, put forth by the Reagan administration, and it's the environmental groups that are challenging this definition that the EPA has put out in regulations. So the regulation was set aside by the D.C. Circuit. That court found the bubble concept 
was designed to merely maintain existing air quality, but was inappropriate for programs enacted to improve air quality, like the Clean Air Act. So the case was appealed to the Supreme Court, and this leads us to the standard by which a court should pretty much judge all challenges to agency regulations now. And it's a two-part test. So now here I'm going to quote because the Supreme Court said it best, and so it's easier just to quote them. When a court reviews an agency's construction of the statute which it administers, it is confronted with two questions. First, always, is the question whether Congress has directly spoken to the, preci- to the precise question at issue. If the intent of Congress is clear, that is the end of the matter. For the court, as well as the agency, must give effect to the unambiguously expressed intent of Congress. So, Rick, real quick, hey, hate to interrupt you. Uh, so, we're, we're on Chevron here, and we're talking about, you know, this two-part test. Um, so, just, just for our listeners, you mentioned the terms clear and unambiguous. Can you can you go into a little bit of detail on what constitutes, you know, some clear and unambiguous? I know that's a broad question, but can you give us a little bit? Um, yeah, and so under step one of the Chevron test, the statute has to be ambiguous in order for there to be an agency interpretation. And um, we'll actually go into this a little later in the podcast in um, a case called Sabina Loving v. Internal Revenue Service. And in that case, it was actually a D.C. circuit. The D.C. circuit did a great um, Chevron step one analysis and discussed how to determine whether a statute is ambiguous or not. And that court actually said, uh, I believe what it said, and we'll get to this when I get to my notes on that, that uh, what you look at is the text of the statute, the structure of the statute, the purpose of the statute, and the legislative history of the statute. So you're looking at you know, the statute itself, outside sources, legislative history is big. But you'll see a really great step one analysis later on in the podcast in uh, the Loving case. Great. Okay. All right. Thanks. Awesome. So that's step one of the test, and that's figuring out whether Congress's intent is clear and um, whether the agency must give effect to the unambiguously expressed intent of Congress. And so now we'll get back into that quote from the Supreme Court um, of the two-part test, and this is going to be part two of the test. And so here, quote, If, however, the court determines Congress has not directly addressed the precise question at issue, the court does not simply impose its own construction of the statute as would be necessary in the absence of an administrative interpretation. Rather, if the statute is silent or ambiguous with respect to to the specific issue. The question for the court is whether the agency's answer is based on a permissible construction of the statute, end quote. And this line is important because if there is no regulation or agency interpretation, the courts do have the power to impose its own construction of the statute, um, sort of like what the D.C. Circuit did. But here you do have an agency construction of the statute or an agency interpretation of the statute. So let's just quickly go back and review here. What the court found was that the intent of Congress wasn't clear. And so now what you have is an agency construction of an ambiguous term that Congress had enacted. Congress's intent was not clear. So 
The question for the court was not whether the bubble approach should have been used or a stack-by-stack approach should have been used. The question for the court was, the question for the court was, was this regulation enacted by the EPA a reasonable interpretation of the statute? And so that now gets us further into step two of the test. And so we now have two different tests under this part two for two different kinds of regulations. And once again, I'm going to quote here um, simply because the Supreme Court says it better than I ever would. Quote, if Congress has explicitly left a gap for the agency to fill, there is an express delegation of authority to the agency to elucidate a specific provision of the statute by regulation. Such legislative regulations are given controlling weight unless they are arbitrary, capricious, or manifestly contrary to the statute. Sometimes the legislative delegation to an agency on a particular question is implicit rather than explicit. In such a case, a court may not substitute its own construction of a statutory provision for reasonable interpretation made by the administrator of an agency. End quote. So the court here is basically saying two types of regulations Um, ones that are um, drafted under an express delegation by Congress and ones that are drafted by an implicit delegation by Congress. If drafted under an express delegation, the test to determine whether the agency regulation is valid is, is the, the regulation arbitrary, capricious, or manifestly contrary to the statute? On the other hand, if there's an implicit delegation, the court simply looks to see if it's a reasonable interpretation of the statutory provision. And so, hey, Rick, just a second, um, real quick, if you don't mind, uh, is uh, how often are those two tests apply? You just talked about the, the you know, the, you're talking about the two step, the, the two step process. And then, you know, within step two, if we get there, there's there's, uh, you know, there's two different tests. How often is each one applied, you know, between those two types of regulations? Uh, you know, Lee, technically there are these two tests, but to be honest with you, in all my research and in all these cases that I've read, um, you really only see that latter test, which is, is the agency interpretation reasonable? Um, that's generally the language that's used by every post-Chevron court. So even though the Chevron case sort of had these two different tests, you don't really see that distinction too much. Although we will see the distinction between implicit delegation and explicit delegation in the tax context later on in the Mayo case, and it's actually really important, and you'll you'll see that in the Mayo case and how that gets cleared up. But good question. Um, really, I, I don't I don't see a whole lot of that in my research. I could be wrong, but that's just my research. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Well, hey, I, I did do, I did do a little research on this, and one thing I wanted to say and and, and throw in was. Um, when we get to, you know, if the court gets to step two, uh, evidently, um, in the, in the overall Chevron analysis, evidently there's about, and there's an article that I, that I read that did a lot of extensive research and decisions here. And apparently if they get to step two, about 89% of the cases that get to step two, there's a finding that the agency, uh, that the agency rules, uh, the agency rule is withheld in 89% of the cases. So yeah, and I, I think that actually makes sense just because, 
if the statute's ambiguous, which step one says it has to be to get to step two, the rule is it's the agency's job to interpret the statute, not the court's, right? So unless the agency goes way off the handle um, in their interpretation, you know, it's generally going to be upheld. And, you know, it. I think another good thing to mention there is um, when judging whether an agency interpretation is reasonable, there can be many reasonable you know, interpretations. So it doesn't have to be the right interpretation or the one reasonable interpretation. There could be many interpretations that differ and can all be reasonable. That's why I think you see that so much, an 89% passage rate almost. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. And, and I guess it goes back to what you said before, right, is that um, it's not the court's decision. It's not the court's job to determine, you know, it, you know, it's not the court's job to determine if we get to step two, you know, how it should be interpreted. It's it's to decide if what the agency did, uh, their the agency's interpretation itself is reasonable or not. It's not the court's, you know, it's the court's not giving its opinion. Yeah, they're, and they're gonna... yeah, and just using this Chevron example, I bet you if it had been flipped and the agency had done a stack by stack regulation instead of bubble regulation, the court would have said that's reasonable. So really, I bet you like both both tests were reasonable, and it just happened to be the one that. The EPA put out. Okay, so they, it looks like they've got, like you said, unless they go off the reservation, they've got a probably a pretty wide berth to, to kind of make decisions if we get to step two. Yeah, and and we'll see some stuff uh, later on where it has been knocked down um, under step two and under step one also. Um, but yeah, good question. All right. So what the Supreme Court found in this case was that the agency's approach was reasonable and upheld the regulation. So that was the Chevron test, and that actually brings us to another Supreme Court case. This is Smiley versus Citibank, and this case is 517 U.S. 735, and it's a 1996 case. And so in this case, uh, Smiley was a resident of California and had a credit card issued by Citibank, which was incorporated in South Dakota. Citibank charged her a late fee and Mrs. Smiley sued claiming that the late payment fees charged by Citibank, although legal under South Dakota law, violated California law, um, California's usury laws. Citibank moved for judgment on the pleadings contending that Mrs. Smiley's state law claims were preempted by a provision of the National Bank Act of 1864 which permits a national bank to charge its loan customers interest at the rate allowed by the laws of the state where the bank is located, in this case, South Dakota. The California Supreme Court ruled in Citibank's favor, and so it went to the Supreme Court on certiorari. And after the California court's ruling, the controller of currency issued regulations defining the term interest. And so in uh, 12 CFR section 7.4001A, the controller of currency, which, uh, by the way, is part of the Department of Treasury, uh, interpreted the term interest in section 85 of the National Bank Act to include late payment fees. And so one of the arguments at the Supreme Court was whether the term interest even includes late payments. And now you have a regulation directly on point saying that the term interest 
does um, include late payments. So the question at the Supreme Court was really whether to give deference to this agency interpretation. And the big part of this case, the big takeaway from this case was from the argument that Mrs. Smiley made that the agency interpretation here was in response to litigation. It was drafted after the California Supreme Court's ruling. And what the Supreme Court says is that um, regulations uh, which are promulgated in response to litigation and in anticipation of litigation do not make the regulations any less valid. Um, And so that was the big takeaway from this case. Even though a regulation is drafted in response to litigation, doesn't make it any less valid. And so now that brings us to United States versus Meade. And so the site on that is 533 U.S. 218. And that's a 2001 Supreme Court case. So really briefly, what you have here is Meade is a manufacturer of day planners. The Harmonized Tariff Schedule of the United States authorizes the United States Customs Service to classify and fix the rate of duty on imports, including day planners. Um, And this is under the rules and regulations issued by the Secretary of the Treasury. As is relevant here, the Secretary of the Treasury provides for tariff rulings before entry of goods um, into the country by regulations which authorize ruling letters. And these ruling letters set um, tariffs tariff classifications for particular imports. And so Mead imports day planners and in and up until 1993 they were imported duty free. In 1993 customs issued a letter changing the classification of day planners and imposing a duty. Mead sues um, but before trial uh, the United States Supreme Court in US v Hager apparel company which uh, the site there is 526 U.S. 380, it's a 1999 case, uh, rules that customs regulations are entitled to Chevron deference. But we don't have regulations here. What we have is a classification letter. And so at trial, that's exactly what the circuit court said. The The classification letters differ from regulations in that they don't go through the APA notice and comment process. Uh, Thus, the circuit court said those letters aren't entitled to Chevron deference or really any deference. So it gets kicked up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed with respect to Chevron deference, um, but remanded the case, telling the lower court to consider the Skidmore standard. And so that brings us back to why we did Skidmore in the first place. Uh, So why did the Supreme Court even take this case? Um, Why are we even talking about this? So it was basically to determine the limits of Chevron deference owed to administrative practice in applying a statute. And so what we got out of this case is that um, there is a limit. Not everything that an administrative agency puts out is entitled to Chevron deference. And so actually uh, a good quote from the Supreme Court here in setting this limitation is um, the following. In deciding whether there is a delegation meriting Chevron treatment, one very good indicator is whether the agency position has been promulgated under formal rulemaking or adjudication procedures such as those set out in the APA. 
The overwhelming number of our cases applying Chevron deference have reviewed the fruits of notice and comment rulemaking or formal adjudication. However, the absence of such procedures does not decide the case for we have sometimes found reasons for Chevron deference even when no such administrative formalities was required and none was afforded. So basically, formal rulemaking um, really gets you Chevron deference, um, which Treasury regulations are. And we're talking about this because we deal a lot with Treasury regulations in the tax law. Also, um, the case basically uh, says that Chevron applies where it appears that Congress was delegating authority to the agency to make rules with the force of law. Um, you know, simple ruling letters don't take on the force of law. Treasury regulations, those do. So, Rick, real quick, and I hate to interrupt you, uh, we're talking about this these U.S. Customs classification letters, uh, you know, in this case, why are we talking about this? What does this have to do with tax? Why, why are we talking about this in the tax context? Uh, well, good question, Lee. I think uh, one of the reasons why it's important in the tax context is because, one, in tax, we rely heavily on treasury regulations. They're a big part of the tax law. Um, but we also have a lot of other guidance by the IRS. We have revenue rulings, uh, revenue procedures, private letter rulings, Etc. There's there's a whole host of stuff. You know this better than anyone. And what it really shows us is that these rulings they don't get Chevron deference. There's a limit to Chevron deference. That's why the court in Mead actually took this case to show the limit of Chevron deference. And a big part of that is uh, Treasury rulings. I mean Treasury regulations go through the APA notice and comment procedure. Revenue ruling stone, uh, rev proc stone, private letter ruling stone, etc. You know, so another big part of the case right there. Okay, and, and, and real quick too, just to, to cap off, cap this off. You mentioned Chevron deference and the limits thereof. But you also mentioned a quote in the case, uh, and I think it's from a from a from a footnote in Mead um, that says you know, where the court said. You know, as significant as notice and comment is in pointing to Chevron authority, the one of that procedure here does not decide the case. So, you essentially, you know, essentially they say that, basically, and, and just clear, clarify that I'm hearing this right, Chevron deference could apply in a case where no, the notice and comment procedures that formal, you know, final Treasury regs go through uh, wasn't wasn't done. But but have you seen any cases? First of all, am I understanding that correctly? And second of all, have you seen any cases? Do we know of any cases where that's happened? You know, um, I'm going to punt a little bit on this. In my research, I haven't seen any real cases discussing this where um, they're discussing regulations or some kind of ruling, etc. that didn't go through the APA process. Well, actually, you know what? I'm going to change my my answer midway there, Lee. We actually saw in Skidmore that those uh, rulings or that amicus brief didn't have APA notice in common, et cetera. And so it wasn't afforded Chevron deference. And I know the court here says that sometimes it can be afforded where there's no, you know, formal rulemaking, APA, et cetera. But um, I haven't seen it in my research. So actually, you know what? Going back to my original answer, I'm going to punt on it. I'm sure there are situations because the court says it. I haven't seen any in my research. I guess those cases just aren't, you know, all that relevant. Or important. Okay. Okay. And hey, and one final question on this: 
you know, you talked about, you know, it's a treasury, it's a treasury regulation that authorizes U.S. Customs to issue these classification letters. So the classification letters themselves are obviously not, you know, you know, anything entitled to deference as you talked about as far as Chevron deference. But we, so we've got kind of a double layered, I don't know the way to term it, redelegation of authority, right? Treasury has authority, then they redelegate it to someone else. Uh, could, do you think, just spitball, could the case have turned out different? I mean, if it was a, if it was just a, you know, if it wasn't done that way or does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I think it probably could have turned out differently. Let's say that instead of drafting a treasury regulation that then authorized these uh, ruling letters, essentially, um, instead it had been drafted right into the regulation, right, that uh, these type of imports are subject to customs duties. Um, I'm sure it would have, because it's drafted right into the regulation, gone through the uh, notice and comment procedure. And who knows if it would have passed after all of that. But let's say it did. My, I, I would suspect that it probably would have gotten Chevron deference. So I think it, I think it made a huge difference. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, Lee. So that was the Mead case, and we have a few more cases that I want to discuss. But uh, we're running short on time here. We're running up to that. 30-minute-ish mark. Um, So uh, let's cut it here and pick it up in the next episode. And what do you think? Sound good? No, I think that sounds good. I think think our our listeners are really going to, you know, as good as this has been, I think they're really going to like what's coming up next with Mayo and Brand X and all that stuff. So uh, that's kind of, you know, I think the meat of all this, in my opinion. So, yeah, I definitely think it's a good time. But, uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, Well, Once again, thanks for listening to the U.S. Tax Court Podcast. I'm Rick Thakra, as always. You can find out more about me at my website, thakralawfirm.com. And as always, joined by Lee Wilson. And Lee, what's your uh, info? Yeah, we know you don't know it. You'll just mess it up, so let's be more efficient. Uh, (laughs) My website is is www.thewilsonfirmplc.com. and hopefully one day Rick will remember that. Yeah, I, I actually think I have it now, but it's just it's safer to let you do it. He's apparently never heard of a post-it note that he can put right <laughs> on his computer there. <laughs> anyway, well, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll catch you at the next episode. See you guys. Bye.